and welcome to the CX Chronicles podcast. This is the show for customer service managers, VPs of customer experience, and all of you other CXers out there. Every week, we are going to dig into topics, challenges, wins, and updates in the CX and customer service community. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chisana. Check us out at CXChronicles.com. Feel free to reach out to us anytime. Thank you so much for being a part of the CX Chronicles Nation. All right. Hello to everyone in the CX Chronicles Nation. I'm your host, Adrian Brady Chisana, and you're listening to the CX Chronicles podcast. Check us out on CXChronicles.com. So guys, I'm very excited about today's show. I have a fellow customer experience-minded leader joining us today that's similar to myself has spent, well, at least the second half of his career living and breathing customer success. The first half of his career, he was actually flying helicopters around, so he'll tell us about that a little bit later. But I would like to welcome to the show Stephen Carlton. Stephen, welcome to the CX Chronicles podcast. Thanks, Adrian. Appreciate it. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, I I can tell a story about my uh, first half of my career before we get into the customer experience stuff, if that's what you'd like. I I mean, I would love to. I mean, I think that in our chat the other day, you you mentioned it and I said, Stephen, you might have to you might have to let our listeners know about this. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, uh, we were talking before uh, we started the podcast here and you're in you're in Buffalo and and just escaping winter. And uh, I grew up in northeast Ohio, so I I understand the weather there. and uh, I, uh, I wanted to get out of there when I went to school and uh, ended up uh, not necessarily in a better weather place, but uh, I wanted to, to, uh, to see the world, so to speak. So I went to uh, school in Connecticut at the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, uh, which is kind of the uh, Coast Guard's version of West Point in Annapolis. Right, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I got to, uh, got to do that, uh, that for four years. And then you uh, end up as an officer in the Coast Guard, and I uh, was out in Seattle on a ship. Everybody goes to a ship for the first two years, and uh, that really wasn't for me. And I thought, well, how about those guys that fly on the back of the ship? Those, that sounds like a fun job. So <laughs> I applied for flight school, got accepted, and uh, went to Pensacola, Florida, which is where the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard all, all do their flight training, and uh, became a Coast Guard helicopter pilot and flew there and then uh, my Coast Guard flying was in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and then I moved to San Francisco, California, and and did some flying out there and scared myself enough after about ten years to say, you know what, I I think I have a desk job and maybe I'll leave this. <laughs> <laughs> and, Makes uh, sense, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I was. Uh, you know, I'd, like I said, I'd scared myself enough, and uh, I was in my thirties, and I thought, oh, you know what, I'd like to do something different because I. Uh, my attention span is fairly short as well. So, uh, so I went to business school and, uh, and left the military and stayed in the Bay area. And, uh, that's when my corporate uh, career started. So that's, that's awesome. I mean, so look, a big part of the, the show, Stephen, as you know, here at CX Chronicles, we talk about all things, customer experience, customer service, customer success and support related. And, um, I mean, you have an awesome story. I would love for you to start to kind of jump into some of the different places that, that you spent during your career and, 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 and just kind of tell folks about your own personal customer experience journey once you did enter that second part of your career. Absolutely. Um, I will say that uh, while I was in the military and my non-flying job, I was exposed to uh, continuous improvement initiatives. Uh, In uh, those days, uh, I was exposed to total quality management, which is very similar to uh, Six Sigma and Lean, um, all sort of the same 
same family, if you will, but, you know, trying to do things uh, better, cheaper, faster. And so, uh, you know, the military is, is full of operators. And when I say operators, that doesn't ne- necessarily just mean manufacturing, but, um, you know, making things work uh, better, faster, cheaper. And and so part of that uh, that that way of approaching solving problems involves understanding your customer and the customer can be an external customer or an internal customer. Basically um, the, the, uh, the person or entity that you're providing your output to or the person or entity that you're receiving input from and, and from a process perspective. And so that was my background um, going all the way back to the military. I carried that into my corporate career at Sun Microsystems. Uh, so even though I didn't have jobs that were specifically, you know, lean, Six Sigma, continuous improvement jobs, I always brought that mindset and those tools with me to whatever job um, I had. So I fast forward a little bit. Yeah, I was in, uh, in at Sun for which no longer exists, Oracle purchased them uh, several years back for about five years, and and my timing was really bad. When I told you I got out of the military, I got out and started my job at Sun uh, six weeks before the uh, dot com bubble burst. And uh, <laughs> nice, nice timing, <laughs> <so> huh? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it wasn't so horrible for me. Um, it, it's. Uh, you know, when you're in the military, you're subject to, to military budgets, and military budgets go up and down depending on who's elected to office. And so okay. yeah. I was accustomed to, you know, to belt-tightening times and then times when when money was uh, was flowing. And so it wasn't a big deal to me for, you know, cutbacks and things like that, but um, apparently that was a new thing in Silicon Valley um, in 2000 because the boom times have been going on for a long time, and and uh, everybody thought thought business would continue up and to the right uh, forever. But uh, so, anyways, it wasn't as startling to me, I guess, because of that uh, military background. But so after that, I, um, you know, Sun was kind of going down the tubes. I hate to say, and I realized that their, uh, you know, leadership was a little bit blinded to some things that they needed to, uh, to, uh, to basically to see to to save the company, and they didn't. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm good going to get out of here. And I, I made a complete change to a different industry, to a biotech industry, to a company called Genentech. Uh, they mostly make cancer and immunology drugs. And I spent about five years there doing uh, capital asset portfolio management and then product portfolio management, which is, you know, how the heck does a helicopter pilot get into that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, ex- so, and, and explain to it, what, what, what are those things? I mean, what, what are those, what did you actually do there? Yeah, sure. Sure. So, um, you know, my, my process background and, and sort of systems thinking background really helped here. The capital uh, portfolio job was was actually interesting. Uh, I had a buddy from the Coast Guard Academy who had worked at Genentech, and he was pestering me to, to come over there for, you know, a couple of years. And I kept saying, why would I go there? I don't know anything about this, about drug making and life sciences. And he was persistent and eventually got me over there. And the first job was uh, capital asset portfolio management. Now, that's a mouthful, but what it really means is – uh, the company has a, you know, companies have a capital budget, which they spend on real property, whether it's machines or office buildings or real estate or what have you. Sure. Yep. And and, and the company had just gotten a, a big cancer drug approved blockbuster drug. The stock doubled in one day. And all of a sudden, this smallish company was uh, under the microscope of Wall Street. Their uh, leadership was smart enough to realize that they didn't have a handle on controlling 
their capital spend. They'd routinely, so when I joined, their capital spend was around 200 million, and they'd routinely spend about 100 to 110 million. So they'd underspend it, which, you know, some people say, oh, that's great, isn't it? Like, well, not really, not if you're planning on spending 200. What did you not do uh, with that other 90 or 100 million Mm -hmm. that you said you were going to spend? And now you've got the, the spotlight of Wall Street on you. And you know, Wall Street doesn't like surprises. And so when you tell them you're going to spend $200 million in capital and you come in and spend 100 or 110 you know, there are sort of two, two things that could be happening there. One is, um, well, something has changed and you haven't told us about it, and we don't like to be surprised, so that's not good. Right. Um, the, other is, the other is that you, um, uh, you're incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> you just you can't manage your budget. Right, and right. Where's the money no going? Either. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, those things, uh, they, they understood that they need to get those things under control and they needed a sort of a systematic approach to, to making things better. And, and essentially it was divided into two pieces. One is picking which capital projects we should spend money on, you know, which, which are going to provide the most return and having a, a, a framework there to, to make those decisions and say, yeah, this, this is what we should do because we're going to get a good return on this capital investment. Sure. Um, and then, you know, once, once that plan was in place and you had the capital projects that you wanted to do and needed to do to run the business, then you have to deliver on those. And uh, the company was notorious for um, being late and uh, way over budget. And sometimes projects didn't even get finished. And so the discipline to deliver them well and on target. And so I designed a framework uh, that allowed that was kind of a stage gated approach, you know, pretty, pretty standard systems process um, thinking. And, over the course of a couple of years doing that, I got to talk to almost everybody in the company, all the different uh, functions in the company. Uh, they had capital spending needs, and so I'd talk to them and try to understand what they're trying to do and coach them through trying to get their capital project um, to compete with others. And I learned a lot about the business, and I realized, oh, if I'm going to stay at this company, well, you know, the action is in the product development uh, where the drug development happens, and right. um, I had to go work over there. And so I was able to parlay that capital portfolio management into product portfolio management job, hmm. which is instead of doing what I just described with the capital investments, you're now doing it with the drug development money, which was a huge portfolio, $25 billion por- wow. portfolio. And, of course, if you know anything about making drugs, it can take 7 to 15 years to get a drug approved. And, sure, and you don't yeah. on the drug until it's approved by the FDA or the European equivalent, and, and you can start selling it. Right. And so it was really important to be able to identify quickly uh, which uh, which projects were uh, we should kill and which ones we should accelerate as fast as we could. And so I did something similar there. Um, you know, ultimately, it was an interesting exercise. I didn't really love the industry. I wasn't sort of a natural fit. I, you know, I studied electrical engineering, not the life sciences. And I wanted to get back into high tech. The good news is that Roche, the big pharmaceutical company from Switzerland, uh, bought out Genentech and I got a nice little uh, going away present and got to spend some time on my bicycle in France and take a couple months off and breathe and then uh, get back into high tech. So I went to Apple, did some consulting there for six months. And, uh, and they, offered me a job. I, I love Apple products and, and wanted to see kind of under the hood sure, what was absolutely. there. And, um, yep. yeah, I enjoyed it. And, uh, but, uh, at the same time, you know, they were offering me a, you know, full-time role and eBay came calling and that's, um, that's really when this customer experience transition happened for me. Okay. Um, you know, officially, um, I, like I said earlier, I had the, uh, 
I had the bones, so to speak, because part of process improvement is understanding your customers, whether internal or external. Um, and I have a, a little bit of a story. My uh, it, this only came to me long after I got into customer experience, you know, officially, professionally. But my ex-wife always used to call me the customer service nightmare. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So. Well, well, wait a minute. So I, I can only imagine that must have meant that uh, you you had you had expectations when you were dealing with the company, and if they were mismatched, you simply wanted to communicate with that company. How how they could either make things right or how you could actually work together in the future is that right, Stephen? <laughs> yes, that's exactly. That's a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, or, or tell us how, or day, tell us how it really went. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm not a very patient guy either. So, um, but and, and and of course, um, customer service, which was you know, customer experience, really didn't exist as a concept, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like even today. People say customer experience, and um, I'd say the vast majority of people immediately associate that with sort of contact center operations and calling customer service when you have a problem, yep. and it's so much more than that. Um, so anyway, so I go to eBay, and I, I'm, I'm in an operations uh, group initially. Um, I figure out that the company claims to be customer-centric, but they're really not. Their actions are really um, not in accord with. Stephen, I have a question for you. Before you yeah. joined the eBay team, were you yourself already um, using eBay heavily? Were you already super intimately involved and, 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 and familiar with them or not so much? What, what was your level of usage of eBay at that time? Um, so, yes, I was familiar. I would not say I was a, a deep, big user. Um, I was only a buyer. I've ne- I had never sold on eBay. Okay. Um, and that is, you know, that, that's a, actually kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, you know, right selling yeah. Is, is kind of bread and butter, um, which I, I learned about after um, after joining the company. So, yeah, I, was, I definitely purchased things on eBay before, but... Uh, um, and you know it was it was fine I guess this was in, this was in the days before Amazon so Amazon ruined it for everybody right <laughs> <laughs> yep I mean yep. I mean I, I say that tongue in cheek I mean I I, 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 I love it. Amazon I'm a huge customer but they have conditioned us every one of us to have these expectations of everyone everywhere you know whether it's Uber whether it's a hotel whatever it is. It's, you know, sort of next or last best experience is, is how they refer to it is, you know, that's the standard by which we're being judged. It's not, you know, I'm a hotel chain and you're judging me against Ritz Carlton or Hilton or Hyatt. You're judging me against the experience you had when you got out of the Uber that took you to my hotel and how easy that was. And so, you know, comparing yourself to industry peers is no longer sufficient. And so Amazon is kind of responsible for that. And then, of course, all the, uh, you know, the iPhone and all the apps and the things that we can do now yeah. in the yeah. palm of our hand have contributed to that. And uh, and so it was a different world back then. And, you know, eBay was not a, necessarily an easy experience, but it was still kind of cool because you could buy stuff online from a stranger and it would show up in the mail. That, that sure. was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but as as uh, customers' expectations, as you said, uh, you know, morphed, uh, and like I said, from Amazon and and all of the uh, the technology that we have now, the power of technology in our hands, um, that changed. And, and eBay was still kind of the wild west of um, e-commerce, and 
you know, when, when you have the Amazon experience and then Zappos and then more and more people try to, companies try to mimic that, eBay was kind of falling behind. And I joined them at a time that they were in a turnaround uh, because uh, this is 2010. Uh, they were in a publicly announced three-year turnaround and knew that things had to change drastically. And so yep. that was an eBay experience. And like I said, I was in an operational group and, and uh, uh, found that the employees were talking about how they loved the customers and everything was about the customer and everything they did was for the customer. But my observation was that's not really what was happening. Um, what was really happening was decisions were being made based on sort of inwardly focused um, biases. Hmm. And, and and there were two main culprits or violators of that. Yep. And uh, one was finance. Okay. And uh, finance, finance's bias was, well, if it's good for our financials, then it must be good for the customer, so we should do it. And the other uh, culprit was uh, engineering or product development. And you know, a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley like to work on innovative things and you know, sexy things. And, right. Right. Uh, they don't want to go back and maintain things that they built two years ago. Sure. And so their their bias was, well, if it's fun and interesting for me to work on, then the customer must need it. Mm. And so the whole company—that doesn't sound right. <laughs> no, exactly. The whole company's making decisions, saying that they're customer centric, but making decisions based on these, you know, these two powerful constituencies in the company: finance and uh, engineering, and and the biases that they bring with them. And so. My my challenge to myself was how do I get people to understand that what they're saying, what they're doing are two different things? And that's when I got into customer experience. I introduced a tool while I was still in my operations role uh, called customer journey mapping to try to, in as gentle a way as possible, show people that they weren't really being customer-centric. And, and that actually took off and, and went quite well. And uh, coincidentally, we got a new chief product officer who came from Apple. I had a chance to sit down with him shortly after he started and kind of told him what I was doing uh, with customer journey mapping. And, and at the end, I remember saying, I said, I'm, I'm not, you know, you've only been here a month, but I'm not sure if you've noticed, but you know, people walk around and talk about the customer, like, you know, the customer's king and number one, but and he finished my sentence for me. He said, yeah, but well, they're not really behaving that way. And I said, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He's exactly. like, I know. you get it. You get it. Yep. And so he had, he advocated for a head of customer experience role, which I filled and then built a team uh, to try to essentially put those uh, tools, the mindset, change the culture, essentially, right, right. Um, to to be customer centric and, and equip them uh, to do that. And then uh, and then ultimately dissolve that uh, that group once we felt like we had enough momentum that, that each of the functions could could be customer centric all the time by themselves and not have sort of this group that was the customer police <laughs> Uh, watching over them and so that and, was uh, and did you and you did you did gain that momentum right you did get to the point where by 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 putting the focus on these different areas and really by kind of not uh, walking the walk and, and talking the talk internally showing people that this stuff mattered it got you guys there it got it got to a good place right yeah improvements were made definitely and like i said by design we wanted my group to disappear because that meant we were successful and yeah. kind of per that attitude to the company. And then I was the first one to uh, disappear. I uh, ended up going uh, into shipping, being, uh, becoming the COO of global shipping. Okay. And so you might, you might say, okay, that's operation. A, that sounds like that's a, a crazy role, my friend, uh, the, <laughs> running a global <laughs> shipping at eBay sounds like a wild situation, but it must've been incredibly fun. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was fun and it's different. So a couple things. Uh, number one is that uh, why shipping? Well, shipping was the number one pain point for our customers. Of course, eBay had yep. both buyers and sellers, and it was a big pain point, especially in the in the world of Amazon, um, where you have lots of different choices and and lots of consistent performance. Yep, um, that was tough for buyers and then sellers. Um, you know, Amazon is sort of first-party inventory. They have uh, most of the inventory comes from their distribution centers. They control, you know, everything from when you click buy to when it shows up in your doorstep. eBay doesn't do that. eBay is a platform. eBay doesn't own anything or ship anything. Mm-hmm. eBay sellers do that. And so you get 12 million sellers, you could have 12 million different experiences generated. Yep. Um, and, and so there's this inconsistency. And like we talked about earlier, you know, the expectations of the buyers um, continues to rise, and, and I don't think it's—I don't think it's going to fall backwards anytime soon. Right. Um, so, so eBay realized they needed to do something with respect to shipping, and so, um, so that was number one. Number two is um, eBay shipping would not be like an Amazon shipping job because, like I said, eBay doesn't have any inventory, so it's not as though we're running distribution centers and trying to ship things all over the world. But what we do is we try to uh, make tools. And, and build relationships with carriers uh, and negotiate discounts that and encourage our sellers to use eBay's um, shipping services, if you will. And, and when I say eBay's shipping services, it's really another platform that's that brings a shipper and a shipping carrier together right. um, on the platform. And there are lots okay. of benefits because we have visibility into the transaction. You can see where the item is, when it gets delivered, in case there's any you know intermediation that you have to do from a customer support perspective. You know, and, and if a seller is doing that off eBay, then we have less ability to satisfy somebody who calls in with a problem because we don't have visibility. And so, so that's what the shipping job was mostly about um, at eBay. Oh man, that's. I mean, it sounds like it was obviously a ton of stuff going on at all times, but it must've just given you an incredible um, insight into what all of these different customers across the world were saying. I mean, you mentioned the, the folks on the platform. I mean, you were seeing things from all angles. I imagine Stephen, right? You were, you were, you were having folks that were having shipping concerns. You were having people that were having problems sending. I mean, it must've been, it must've been a really, really, um, difficult challenge just to just to kind of figure out how to sort through all of that every single day absolutely and one of the things that was um a real uh issue was uh was they call it, uh, freight um so not shipping like you don't take a box down to the ups store or the post office yep but right. freight like you buy a you know 70 inch tv exactly. or a refrigerator item right yeah yeah washer or dryer and um you know there are sellers on ebay that sell those things um and, and that it's pretty expensive to ship if you're a, a small uh, small um, business, and so what can eBay do to help promote those types of that type of inventory um, to be sold on eBay? Because if it's not easy to sell and ship on eBay, then then sellers are not going to do that. And so you know those are um, high average um, sales price items, which means eBay gets a you know a higher commission. So eBay's incented to promote those things and to make it easier for more sellers to, um, to ship things like that. And, um, and that was a, that was an interesting, uh, wrinkle, I guess I'd say, um, compared to the, what I think a lot of people think of eBay, you know, they think of eBay, you know, you buy a used iPhone or you buy some, you know, whatever, some, some sandals or something like that or or something. I don't know. Um, 
and and you know the the fact is that eBay about seventy five percent of e, uh, eBay's revenue is commodity items that are sold new uh, from sellers. You know, just you know, think about going to Amazon, think about going to Best Buy, think about um, that that type of stuff. It's not the it's not the garage sale inventory that I think a lot of people associate with eBay. That's that's awesome. Well, look, it sounds like eBay was an incredible, uh, incredible experience. I mean, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. I would love for you to tell us a little bit about. I'd love for you to tell the CX Chronicles Nation a little bit about um, your new company, Customer Matters. Right? I'd love for you to kind of uh, highlight some of the things that you work on and, and, and talk to us about what you do right now, Stephen. Sure. So I left eBay almost two years ago, and it was a. Uh, I left because the momentum that we had gotten started to dissipate, and uh, I don't, I'm not sure how much the audience, the uh, nation, knows about uh, eBay. But a couple of years ago, well, it's more than that, um, about three and a half years ago, maybe mm-hmm. uh, Carl Icahn, famous uh, investor, started. He he likes to go to companies and, and sort of agitate and say, "Hey, you should <laughs> you should spin off uh, this part of the company because it's really valuable and you're holding it back." Yeah, yeah. and he's usually right. You know, he's usually right. I mean, it's, it's pretty hardcore, but uh, he wanted uh, eBay to spin off PayPal. He thought eBay was uh, holding PayPal back. And, and, uh, and it, uh, of course, eBay's, I'm sorry, PayPal's financial success covered a lot of eBay sins. And so eBay spent six months fighting him on that, then eventually changed their mind and said, okay, we'll spin it off. And then spent the next year trying to figure out how do you sort of disentangle these two companies that had spent, you know, a, over a decade um, you know, integrating. And, and so over that year and a half, and then after the spin out, there was still major attention paid on the, um, on the, on the effects of that, because eBay was now a much smaller company. They didn't have the, uh, you know, the, uh, the golden goose of PayPal covering up their performance. So, so top, you know, very top management, the C-level management was, was very much distracted over the course of two plus years. And the momentum that we had gained, uh, was was i don't want to say it was lost but certainly it felt like we you know hit some quicksand um because you know, these these efforts you know big top down culture change efforts take um serious attention and commitment and engagement from the top leadership and when they're distracted like that and they and in all fairness, they should have been distracted. That was a pretty big deal, um, you know, uh, spinning out a, a company and, and that. And so, um, but from my perspective, it was, you know, I was I'm incredibly passionate about this. And and I realized that I was just going to be fighting an uphill battle. And I'm not sure I was going to have any more success than we already had. And so I decided to leave. And um, because I love doing this so much, I'd had some, some success and some positive feedback you know, speaking at conferences and things like that. And I said, you know, I think I can do this on my own and um, have a good story to tell and, and start my own consulting company, which I did uh, called Customer Matters. Awesome. And yeah, and so that's what I've been doing for about, you know, 19, 20 months. And uh, it's uh, it's really fun. That is, that's, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I, I mean, as you and I have chatted about in our last, our last conversation, we're both the exact same way where, the reality is um, every every business arrives at it in a different place, but the customer is it's the it's the lifeblood of the business right and the faster that you can start building uh, every little piece and every little exchange and every little interaction that they have with the business um, to, to, to to a positive type of light you're gonna you're gonna create a group of folks that are gonna not only love the company but they're gonna tell people about the company and um, 
And I know that that's a big part of what customer matters focuses on you helping, helping your clients with that. Um, Steven question for you. Um, are there two key focus areas that you think small businesses or startup companies should focus on as it relates to customer experience? Two key focus areas that they can, if, if they can only do two things, what would it be? Yeah. Um, I think it's incredibly important to, to start off with a customer first mindset and, and it's easy to say, and it's harder to do. And I'll give you a couple examples or, or an example of why, if you start from the beginning with that as, you know, maybe one of your core values and, and you, you not only behave that way with your customers, you actually filter it into your, your hiring process. Yeah. You, screen, you, you screen for it when you're hiring people, uh, performance management, you make sure that people are being measured on that and, and are buying into that. And if they're not, then you know, maybe they're not a good fit. And so um, it's easier to do that from the start, Adrian. Um, and I, and I uh, will give you two examples, uh, you know, maybe tired by this point, but Amazon and eBay. Yeah. Uh, Amazon, Amazon has 14 leadership principles. Their number one is obsessed about the customer and it's been there from the start. And so if you work at Amazon and have ever worked at Amazon, that's your focus is the customer. Um, Zappos is another company that does that. And yep. I don't know if you ever, yep. ever buy anything from Zappos or call their customer support. Oh my They're gosh. Awesome. It's, it's like, it's incredible. It's like calling your best friend. And yeah, it gets you so literally. good. Yep. It's, it's, it's amazing. And, um, and so at eBay, we didn't do that, you know, back when the company was founded in 95, that wasn't really the focus. Um, not like it was at those other two companies, Amazon and Zappos. Um, and, and my job, you know, almost two decades later was to try to change that culture. And as I told you in the last segment, uh, you know, that was really hard work. I mean, it takes huge commitment and I'm not sure they really got over the bar and stayed over the bar. Um, and, and so that's what I would advise um, a young company to do is to focus on that. And when I say focus, I mean, you, you should probably talk to somebody who knows this stuff whether it's a consultant, whether it's a colleague, whether it's somebody on your board, but you have to get it right. You can't just say it. It's not lip service. And there are, there's a systematic approach to doing this. You know, I've, I've got a, uh, I've got an approach that I use for companies, you know, when they want to, when a lot of times companies say, well, we need to get customer experience religion. You know, we, we got to do this, but we have no idea where to start. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so, where do we start? Like, How okay, do we get well, this going? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about it. So I've got, you know, basic framework that I talk about and, and different, you know, every company is different and different things resonate with different companies. And, and from there we build out a plan and, um, and we say, okay, this is how, this is, these are things that are important to focus on. Here's how we're going to do these and let's, you know, how we're going to keep track of them and make sure that we're um, down that path. So that's number one is that key focus area. I'd say number two is, and this is going to sound really weird and maybe soft, but it is the ability to be transparent. And that's transparent with your colleagues in the company, uh, transparent with your customers. If you screw up, say you screwed up. Yep. I mean, and human beings are generally forgiving, especially Americans are generally forgiving. You know, yep. if, if you, you know, if you, lie, cheat and steal and lie about it for, um, you know, years and years. And then you're finally found out, well, everybody's cheering for you to go to jail. Right. But if you lie, cheat and steal and say, yeah, you know what? I, I was in a bad place. Uh, you know, however you confess and, and you're generally forgiven. Yeah. 
And, yep. and, and that's the same in business. Um, you know, if you, people don't want to call you with a problem and then be, feel like you're making it their fault. Yep. You know, I mean, that's yep. a losing strategy. Always, and so, yeah. Trans, yeah, the, so the transparency is, and, and that, you know, goes into, uh, it's not just with the customers, it's with your colleagues. You, know, you should kind of have this, you know, I don't know if you watch the, the uh, show uh, Silicon Valley, but uh, in the past of couple course. weeks, yep. they, <laughs> There's been a um, a COO uh, character on there who talks about radical candor, and you know it's kind of, it's kind of funny and, and, and silly. I'm a fa- I'm it. a fan of radical candor, Stephen. I'm a fan of radical Me candor. Me too. That's what I'm talking about. But, you know, radical candor means radical candor all the time, not just when it's convenient okay, for you. Good point. So. Okay, good point. Good point. It's got to be consistent. Yeah, yeah, the good and the bad, right? And so, you, and you have to give and you have to receive. So, um, those are the things. That, and like I said, it, it sounds kind of soft, but um, if you get back to the root of it, customer experience is really a manifest great customer experience. It's really a manifestation of the culture that you've created, and the culture is the behavior, um, the processes, um, and the behaviors that we exhibit um, to the rest of the world. Yeah, no, that is that is spot on, my friend. It really is, Stephen. I would love to. Try, I would love to. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with the uh, with the with the CX Chronicles Nation before we wrap up the show? Any new uh, projects or, or 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 work that you want to uh, want us to know about? And then, if so, where can we uh, where can the nation reach out to you? Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, let's see. Number one is if you are interested. In learning more about customer experience, there is a um, CX Success Summit going on right now, and it's virtual. It's online. And I'm one of the participants, and there are many customer experience experts that have uh, done interviews, kind of similar to this, except they're video. Um, and you can access that, and I think you can still get a free pass. It's kicked off on Monday or Tuesday this week. Yep, yep. And, and so it's called uh, Customer CX Success Summit, and I can send you the link to that. Um, the other is, you know, go out, get out, and go to go to um, networking groups. You know, the CXPA, the Customer Experience Professionals Association. Um, check that out. It's one hundred ninety-five dollars a year to join, and it's full of people like you, Adrian, and me, who um, you know have online forums. And if you ever had a question about stuff. It's an incredible community. Uh, you will get so much help, free help. Now, don't have to hire a consultant or anything. Yep. Um, yep. You know, for one hundred ninety-five dollars a year, and they also have a certification program, uh, so you can get a uh, uh, certified customer experience professional uh, certification. You know, through some uh, a lot of uh, experience and, and, a, and an exam. Um, so I would encourage the audience to go there. And then the other, um, you'll also find that they have. Uh, events in your area uh, and that you can go to and, and meet people who are passionate about customer experience. Also go to speaking, uh, you know, go to conferences, speaking engagements. I'm going to be over in London speaking at customer experience world oh, nice. in a couple weeks. Yeah. And then, and then they have another one down in uh, Cape town, South Africa in uh, I think August. I'm going to be down there. So I'm trying to expand my business globally. So I'm going uh, there. That's um, awesome. Steven. In that's addition really, to, uh, that's to US sweet. Yeah. You're going to have yourself a fantastic time, and you're going to be able to keep uh, spreading the word globally, man. That's going to be incredible. I want you to. Um, I will definitely hit you up offline about that. I'd like to get more information about that. That's going to be incredible for you. Yeah, and you know, uh, I have a Twitter handle called Customer Matters, and that's Matters with a Z. 
because Customer Matters with an S is owned by a woman in New Zealand. And I <laughs> you might have, you're going to have to make your next stop over there to have a little chat with her. Exactly. exactly. Well, my daughter says, you know, Customer Matters with a Z is, uh, is more edgy, Dad. It's cool. <laughs> it's, it's the modern way. It's the modern way. Exactly. So uh, anyways, I, I tweet quite a bit, and it's a kind of a, a loosely curated um, set of articles that I, you know, I, I do a lot of retweeting or sharing of articles that I see that um, if you really want to uh, read about things that I think are important uh, to customer experience efforts, um, you can just follow me there and uh, and read articles there instead of having to go search for them yourself. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephen Carlton, for joining the CX Chronicles podcast. We are absolutely thrilled that you were able to join us today. Um, please keep us posted with what you're working on in the future. And again, um, we're, we're definitely going to keep this conversation going. And uh, thank you so much, Stephen, for joining the show today. I really, really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And thanks to the CX Chronicle Nation for, uh, for listening. Thanks so much, Stephen. Have a great day, all right? You too, Adrian. Bye-bye. Right. Take it easy now. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to CX Chronicles. I wanted to take a quick minute to talk about one of our key sponsors, Salesforce. Are you interested in figuring out a way of optimizing your sales and marketing and customer experience efforts? Take no steps further. Salesforce, here are some of the benefits of a CRM software that can help your company find success. Improved information organization, CRM for enhanced communication, CRM improving your customer service, an automation of everyday tasks, greater efficiency for multiple teams, and analytical data and reporting. Check out Salesforce today. listening to another episode of CX Chronicles. Be sure to subscribe, save, and share with all of your fellow CXers. And until next time, make happiness a habit, CX Chronicles Nation. Check us out at cxchronicles.com.